Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, the new book by Anne Helen Peterson. Esquire magazine calls Can't Even, quote, a razor-sharp book of cultural criticism. With blistering prose and all-too-vivid reporting, Peterson lays bare the burnout and despair of millennials while also charting a path to a world where members of her generation can feel as if the boot has been removed from their necks. Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson, available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People program. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're okay wherever you are. I have Laura Bogart on the program today. She has a debut novel out on Dezank Books. It is called Don't You Know I Love You. Laura Bogart is also a nonfiction writer. She publishes personal essays, writing on pop culture, film and television, feminism, body image and sizeism, politics. She writes about a wide range of things. Perhaps you've read her online. She's a featured contributor to The Week, as well as Dame Magazine, and her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Spin, The AV Club, Vulture, and IndieWire. I should mention, too, that I first got to know Laura Bogart as a writer via The Nervous Breakdown. Back when I was editing the site, she published several essays over at The Nervous Breakdown. That was my first uh, experience reading her, and I'm very pleased to see her having this publication success with her novel, which once again is called Don't You Know I Love You. So let's get to it. My conversation with Laura Bogart talking about her book, her writing, her life, all of it, right now. Here she is, folks. This is Laura Bogart, and her novel, One More Time, is called Don't You Know I Love You. The novel is sort of something that had been percolating in the back of my mind for a long time, but I didn't know, you know, if I could do a novel. I had only done sort of shorter form pieces, and I had a lot of um, really 
like intense emotionality and really intense thoughts and feelings around the subject matter of the novel. And it's about like a young woman who is surviving sort of a chaotic, abusive home and coming into herself as an artist, as a woman um, and trying to sort of define herself against her family of origin. And I, you know, it's personal to me. That's no secret. Um, And I started out sort of writing them, you know, writing about these feelings and essays and finding context for them in pop culture um, and, and just sort of pouring things out very personally. I tend to be sort of a very interior, um, intuitive writer um, and thinker. Like I have to kind of write and process and process and process. And then when I'm sort of ready to do it, then I'm, then I'm really ready to, to do it. And which is not to say that the novel did not have its fair share of drafts because it did. Um, but I, I definitely was grateful for the platform I had at Nervous Breakdown to just start playing with these ideas and to learn that people actually cared um, about it. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting. As I was uh, prepping and, and rereading some of the essays you published on the Nervous Breakdown years ago, I was thinking that the site functions as a kind of way station. It's almost like a public bulletin board, mm. but it's also like a way station from which I feel like a lot of writers have been able to make an ascent, you know? Yeah. Um, I hope I'm using that metaphor properly. You know, like, I like a, it. what's the, what's the, the mountaineering term, you know, where there's like a base camp or something from which you sort of make some community, um, get your work out there, find some readers, and then you have moved on to uh, like bigger online publications and I guess print publications and then the publication of a novel. But I, I don't know. I like that conception of it. That seems to be how it's functioned over the years, um, you know, for people at various stages of their careers. Yeah, I think so too. I and And I think honestly the best part of it was the community and was how generous people um, – were and they've been and I I've sort of been very lucky and I felt a lot of you know just love from the literary community you know starting to publish um back then publish those essays because they were very raw and um I was really scared to put them out there you know people are going to care I think culturally speaking um at least at the time when I was publishing them I think it's changed a little bit now but you know there was this sort of, um, I guess you might say, like a backlash against the confessional essay. It was this idea of, you know, why does this matter? Is this like a real problem? This isn't something that you're talking about on a global scale. It's sort of the intimacy of of your life. And to have people come out and say, um, you know, hey, this mattered. I was moved by this. I appreciated it. Um it made me feel like I had something to say. And so I think that the value of community can't really be understated. And then even publishing a novel in a pandemic, you know, I remember like, you know, this came out in March and I remember thinking like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I can't go to any of the places that I was going to go to. And I have a number of friends that were publishing books around this time. Some of us, it was our first book. And then some of us, it was maybe a second book or a third book. And I felt very supported by literary community. I, you know, there were people immediately coming out and saying, hey, I'm hosting a Zoom reading series or 
I'm interviewing writers who've been impacted by this pandemic. Um, you know, I'm excerpting, I'm doing everything. So um, the support of this community has just made such a difference to me, just not only in the beginning of my career, but just, you know, even in the terms of publishing this book, it's made something that could have been, you know, sort of a sense of a dream kind of withering on the vine a little bit. And I say that in context of of knowing that publishing a book in this time and dealing with, you know, things not going off the way that I would have necessarily dream that they would is is a drop in the bucket compared to what other people are going through but just having the support of a community like that it just made it you know it it really gave things like a silver lining um and and made me feel even more connected to something yeah it's like you had built that foundation not knowing exactly how you would need it down the road (laughs) who who could have predicted covid no nobody And I think, too, what comes to mind, you know, as you talk about how this community has rallied around you and your work, not just the book, but also those earlier essays, you know, I think if you do good work and there's especially I think if there's some skin in the game, you know, if you're writing from a place of deep personal um, emotion, deep personal risk. Uh, people who read that stuff tend to be moved by it. You know, you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted not to read somebody like really grappling with the stuff of their life mm-hmm. uh, in an um, artful way and mm-hmm. not at least come away with like some sense of respect. At least that's how mm-hmm. I feel, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think you can do much better uh, as an artist than to go there in some way. And I can understand why you were able to find connectivity as a result of putting yourself out there like that because I think most people who genuinely engage with it find it to be a relief to read something like that thank you yeah I mean I I and because I know that I've taken comfort in these things when I've read things and or listened to things that have been really personal I mean it's you know, I remember being a teenager, like a young teenager and listening to like Tori Amos and that was searing. And I never heard anybody talk about those experiences in that way and sort of the totalitary, you know, excuse me, the totality of those experiences and the rawness of it. And I remember, you know, sitting with like girls in my class in high school and listening to it and I remember my friend's boyfriend you know he had something shitty to say about it he was like well why is she always talking about these sad things nobody wants to hear about that and so that's like the kind of force that you get outside right like that's the type of thing that you hear but I still remember this sort of nucleus of girls just sitting at this table and even if we didn't entirely understand everything she was talking about like we understood how personal it was and ironically because it was so personal in some ways it was collective it was universal because we could like graft our own experiences onto it and that's sort of where I got this sense of like the importance of a personal narrative and the importance of using your own story um in something just being being a high school kid sitting at a table listening to Tori Amos or you know PJ Harvey um you know, music was a big influencer for me in the beginning, like Jeff Buckley. I mean, just this sort of very, very intimate 
style always appealed to me. And I, you know, when I started writing, I found the things that were more like personally successful to do and then sort of collectively successful to do were the things that not only like were personal, but just talked about things that people didn't want to talk about or that they might find shameful in some way or just vulnerability on the page. And, um, you know, I've kind of struggled with vulnerability in real life a lot of the time, um, but I can find it on the page and channel it on the page. And I think that's where people are, you know, that's where people want to seem to meet me and where I want to meet other people who are making art. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think my taste is similar. Um, you know, when somebody's being vulnerable in their work and, you know, it's also a little bit complicated because it has to be artful, you know, mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> just like, just yes. like barfing out your feelings on a page isn't necessarily it, but if you mm-hmm. do it in a way that really brings the reader into the, into the, like the best clarity, um, of your, uh, the best clarity of thought that you're able to muster and there's a sense of narrative, then it can be really compelling and meaningful. And even if you don't have a sense of shared experience in a one for one way, Mm-hmm. And, you know, before we get too much further into the conversation, because you're starting to touch on things that I want to talk to you about, but sure. I, I feel like it would be useful um, to sort of begin a conversation around your book mm-hmm. with this theme that you're, I think it's the main theme of the book, which mm-hmm. is how does a person who has suffered through cycles of abuse not become uh, like their abuser. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yes, that is exactly it. Um, because that is not a question that I see talked about a lot. And I don't, I really don't see it talked about a lot in terms of women um, and the way women process violence and process abuse. So that is exactly what I wanted to talk about. I think what it comes down to is the way that we are taught to think about power, culturally speaking, and I and and personally speaking, right? Like we have this idea of the authoritative figure, the dominant figure, the figure that we should all aspire to as someone who is incredibly domineering, incredibly aggressive, um, has a lot of forceful dynamic energy which is also often translated into anger and i know that i looked at my own family situation and i saw my father as being someone who seemed to at the time you know when you're young and you live in fear you look at the object or at least i did i looked at the sort of locus of my fear and i thought that is power and if i have to be someone who does not have power and is hurt and is made vulnerable um, and can be damaged, or if I can be the force that generates the fear, um, that seems to have the force, the power that does not live under threat, then that would be the thing to aspire to as opposed to the force that is that is put upon. And that's sort of a sick way of thinking, right? But I, I think we can see it sort of in our culture um, across the board when we think of figures that we're supposed to emulate, um, when we think about what we value, um, and, you know, and then personally. And so I, it's very interesting to me, the conversations that we've been having sort of broadly about 
anger and women's anger and women tapping into their anger because I've sort of been there for a long time. And I, I, I mean, I would say for me, like every feeling I had became anger because I could see anger in my father as this thing that gave him power and authority um, and, and that so dominated my own imagination and my own heart and my own way of thinking. Um, and I wanted that, but the wires got crossed to think about strength as being rage. And I would have wrathful reactions to things. And some of the things that I had wrathful reactions to were like fully and wholly justified. And in some ways, like having access to that wasn't entirely a bad thing. But the problem with me is that I would not know when to shut it off. And that's a thing that I feel like we've seen talked about in men, right? Like the angry young male figure, Um, you know, going back, you know, mythology, that figure appears kind of constantly, you know, the great hero, the warrior, you know, the slayer of monsters and demons, you know, even in something like, you know, one of the big influences on my novel was actually like Rebel Without a Cause and Wild One. You know, and I remember growing up and watching like James Dean and Marlon Brando and like, you know, finding them attractive and like wanting to be with them, but also wanting to be them because they had access to that great power. Um, I want to interrupt you here. I want to interrupt you just because I think this is worth like staying on for a moment. What do you mean by their great power? You know, obviously they're attractive. Yeah. um, You know, heroes or whatever, anti-heroes of the silver screen. But can you define a little bit more what the power was that you saw in them that you were responding so strongly to? So they had this like this like menace to them, right? Brando, I think more so than Dean, but like Dean's like getting in a knife fight in Rebel Without a Cause. And then in East of Eden, you know, he is um, kind of skulking around and doing some kind of naughty things that are driven out of anger. You know, he sort of ruins his brother. Right. Because he's he's so angry. If you haven't if you haven't seen that movie, spoiler alert for East of Eden. Um, But he he basically like ruins his brother because his brother is the golden child and he is not. And he exposes his brother to some very harsh truths. Um, And then, like I said, in Rebel Without a Cause, he's knife fighting. He's doing the chicky run and he's enacting these feelings of chaos and rage and displacement in ways that are sort of outwardly aggressive. And then young Brando, I mean, my God, I mean, there's the wild one where he's literally kind of driving around as part of this motorcycle gang. Um, And there's, you know, he has this real kind of menace and it's a sexual menace, but it's also like a formidable violence. He's built like a bruiser. Um, He can go in there and fuck stuff up. And there's always that potential there with him. Um, and then, of course, in like Streetcar Named Desire, he is sort of the dark star around which that whole narrative sort of, you know, he consumes it all. And it's because he has this ability to, you know, show great tenderness, yes, but also have this explosive, propulsive violence Um that is also seen as exciting. Like, I think one of the more interesting lines in that movie, right, is when 
Blanche is sort of saying to her sister, like, this is terrible. How can you possibly be attracted to this man? Like, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a thug. He's a, you know, he's a primate. He's, you know, he's a caveman. And she talks about how on their wedding night, he went in and smashed all the lights with his slipper. And that's, that's it. That's the image, right? Where it's someone who's capable of great destructiveness but there's something appealing about it. And that's what I mean by that power. Um, and I saw that sort of energy in myself because that's what I grew up around. That's what I saw. And I thought I never, when I would see women get angry um, in film, in TV, or, or even I never, or even in my own life, it would either have to be subdued or it would have to be directed towards some sort of um, positive cause, or they could be like an action hero in a movie or a villainess in a movie. Um, They never just got to be fucked up and be angry and be scared and sad and not know what to do with it. Um, And I really saw that in myself and I wrote about it in those stark terms because I I was compelled to do it. And I thought, I can't be the only one who feels like this. And then when I wrote my novel, I really did. Like, I went back and I thought about those early depictions of, like, the Dean Brando sort of archetype. And I really grafted them onto this young woman. Um because I had never seen that and I wanted to see it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, you know, I, I feel like the question that it brings to mind is, how does one, in a practical manner you know, uh, transcend an abusive situation. Like, I guess in in your case, it was in, you know, your childhood home. Uh, acknowledge, like, see all of these feelings and all of these, um, like, psychodynamics clearly and then find a way to something better. Yeah. Like, do you have an answer for that after writing this book and, uh, you know, doing mm-hmm. like the, like, uh, I guess, like, you know, self-investigation through therapy or through writing? Like, have you landed somewhere that you feel like is clear and defined on this? 
Uh, that's a that's a really good question. I think I have greater clarity, but I don't know. It's I think the process of writing all those essays and writing the book really um it was almost like it burned something out of me. And not like in a way like I'm burned out, that's bad, but in a way that like there was something that was raw and needed to come out and the process of um, churning through it, writing about it, talking about it constantly, it does get you thinking about things unconsciously. And when I was writing the book and I could see like the heroine's dilemma is so clearly, is she going to become her father? Is she not going to become her father? And I always sort of knew that I wanted to write toward a more optimistic place, not a pat happy ending, but I knew that I wanted to get her to a place where she would have some hope. And I think I sort of carried myself through that. And it's funny how, you know, for a very long time, this sort of question of my own father was the thing that drove me and animated me. And he was this sort of very central figure in my own imagination. And then in the process of like writing this, he just wasn't anymore because I got out what I needed to get out. And now I find him in a place where like, I have stuff to work through that's related to um, my childhood and that is related to the way I grew up and the messaging I grew up with. I think I always will. But am I sort of caught up in this emotional entanglement with this man and what he was to me when I was younger? Like, not so much anymore. And that has really been um, cathartic for me. And I find myself wanting to think about other things in life and other forms of connection now in a way that is sort of moving beyond this sort of immediate excavation of anger, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say conflicting things on this show in conversation over the years around this idea of catharsis through writing. Mm-hmm. And I think if you sort of like pick it apart a little bit, I, I will concede that you don't necessarily heal in like a super clean and neat and tidy way mm-hmm. just because you wrote a book about some personal <laughs> struggles or emotional anguish or whatever. But I do think it's cathartic in the sense that it allows you to move on, you know, and it, you're doing deep. If you're confronting it honestly, if you're making a good faith effort, to really look at it and to go deeply into it and to try to see it for what it is. Uh, if, and if you know, you're an honest broker about it, mm. it's not dissimilar to therapy. Uh, you know, it's a deep investigation and it makes sense to me that there would be a feeling of genuine catharsis. And it makes sense to me that you would be able in the aftermath of completing a project like this to move forward in a fundamentally new and better way and to have a sense of, like you say, burning away. I, like the word that comes to mind is cleansing. You know yes. that it would have like a cleansing effect yes. uh, on your spirit. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Like that. That feels real to me. It does not feel like some sort of like airy fairy, like woo woo stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's that, and that's a good term for it. And I, you know, I as I've gotten older, I sort of like sometimes the way that like 
some of the best, honest to God, some of the best writing out there, and I don't even know if you would categorize it as like self-help writing, but just like writing about emotions comes from like astrologers and tarot readers. And even if you, like I was, I get this like email subscription um, from this one woman who does like a tarot reading for the month. And her her thing that she sent out recently, it she talked about this myth of um and i'm gonna butcher it i'm gonna paraphrase it but it was these three young men who get locked in an ice house and they can either sit down in the ice house or they can move they can start dancing and if they start dancing it's going to take a while but the heat and the friction of their bodies is going to melt the house down and they'll be free And this woman's writing about this and she goes, the things in your own life, the areas where you have not progressed and where you are afraid of progressing, that's like the ice house. And you can either sit down in the areas where you're fearful or you feel stagnant or you can try to move through them. And it's going to feel weird. It might hurt. It might burn a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're going to see like the blue sky above you. And I was like, damn that's perfect (laughs) that was like one of like the most beautiful things I've read recently and it came from this woman who's like a professional tarot reader so it's I I I like these sort of like big images of like cleansing um you know burning through things like I I don't know I like to some degree I like a little bit of woo yeah I, I think we all need a little bit of woo in our life sometimes I don't disagree and I also think that you know, if we're going to define woo as something that's like spiritual or new agey, yeah. it's really, I, I think what we're talking about isn't anything crazy. What we're talking about is the fundamental psychological reality um, that I think is, I think is clear. And what I mean is that if you're going to try to overcome a personal difficulty, like something emotional, some trauma, something, mm-hmm. a loss, you know, anything, yeah. it could be anything, any of the, the big human things that plague people. What we're saying and what we're characterizing as woo is the idea that the way through is through. Yeah. And there is, yeah. I think, despite the fact that it seems so obvious, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially once you've been through it and you've kind of learned that it works, even though it might not be pleasant or easy, mm-hmm. I think there's a fundamental, uh, like reflexive aversion to this, you know, who wants to sit and take a deep look at their own pain, who mm-hmm. wants to do the hard work of sitting down with a therapist and going through childhood trauma uh, or, you know, marital difficulty or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, but if you don't do that and if you just pretend it's going to go away on its own or if you numb yourself with drugs or television or social media or whatever it is mm-hmm. you're going to wind up exacerbating these uh these issues uh, a lot of the time they're not going to just like wither on the vine and go away a lot of times they fester and mm-hmm. grow worse and wind up impacting your life in negative ways that may or may not even be related you know in a direct way so I don't know. That to me just seems like psychology 101, but I feel like as human beings, myself included, you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, we, we kind of, we can, we can trick ourselves and feel like, oh, we'll just put it off, you know? Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. I think, and I think that it's sort of interesting now that we're in this sort of stasis, culturally speaking, right, where we should still be indoors. Um, we should still have sort of a limited mobility, so to speak, in terms of where we go, what we do. Um, the normalcy of life is disrupted in varying degrees. And certainly for some people, more extreme than others. Um, and I feel like we're at this sort of cultural moment where we have to look at everything that we've been doing to distract ourselves, to disengage um, from the realities that we've been living in. And it's very difficult. I think on some level, this is maybe why you see these sort of this, some of these some people just really push for this return to normalcy or life as they knew it. And this sort of fear and anger around accepting the reality that we're in right now, um, because that's really hard. It's really hard and scary. And the way you say it, it's like, yeah, the only way through something is through it and I find like on the one hand like yeah that's like terrifying like you, you can't you know there's no gingerbread lane that you can go down through there's no yellow big road but on the other hand there's a sort of brutal simplicity to it where it's like okay all you can do is just one foot in front of the other and make it through day by day by day by day that is like somewhat affirming in a way because it's like this is the directive this is the simple thing that we're in right now. And I know I have tried to focus on, and like I'm guilty of doom scrolling myself. Like I am very guilty of like getting on the Twitter machine and scrolling through and feeling like really hopeless and feeling like things are doomed and awful and bad. Um, and, you know, things are awful. They are bad right now. Um, and they have been for some time. But um, I, I do find some comfort in this idea that like I mean maybe comfort's not the right word but just it's instructional to say okay all I can do is get through this day go to the next one and the one beyond it and that's all anybody can do beyond other kind of ways that we can be proactive as as citizens and you know as people who who give a damn about others of course but just on sort of a molecular basic kind of blunt level you know yeah, yeah. And, you know, as, as we're talking, I'm thinking to myself that people listening at home, you know, you've alluded to a difficult childhood and the stuff that you went through. But can you just like, is it possible to just uh, talk a little bit about like some of the struggles that you grew up with in, in a real world way? Like you've mentioned that your father mm -hmm. uh, was challenging for you. I think you've <clears> written <throat> about him struggling with alcohol uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, can you just talk a little bit more about how you grew up and, and yeah. what, you know, what you have had to deal with, uh, in terms of trauma and, um, you know, recovery. Yeah. So, you know, look, my father is a man who has, um, uh, depression, anxiety. Um, he was not a kind man. He would have very explosive fits of temper, um, that were really terrifying. Um, sometimes, you know, emotionally, um, sometimes physically. Um, and then it's funny though, when I think about some of the things that he did, you know, one of the crueler things is, you know, he would get really angry at us for instance, and he would not speak, um, for like 
you know, he would not talk to me for like a week at a time or like two weeks at a time. And like my mother would go to him and be like, you should not do this. This is not good. Um, and he would say, well, how else will she know that I'm mad at her? <laughs> so, you know, there was there was some physical stuff. There was some emotional stuff. Um, you know, I think of him as sort of, um, you know, this sort of roiling force and you didn't know what you were going to get um, in terms of were you going to get like an, a, a tranquil sea or when you're going to get the wave that just bears down on you and drowns you. Um, so that was really hard, um, that I, you know, dealt with in the house. Um, I was, um, sexually abused by a neighbor around the same time from about age, um, six to eight, I think. So that also was compounding some of the things that were going on at home. Um, and then, you know, just like, also like I grew up as like a, you know, chunky kid. I'm a girl of size. So I was getting bullied in the classroom too. Um, so childhood was not an easy or fun time for me, but you know, I, I found like comfort in, in books, um, in, in certain types of media and movies in TV, um, and those things like really sustained me. They made me feel like I had a world that I could retreat to, um, you know. And I remember like, you know, even like silly stuff, like like watching like Ninja Turtles or Care Bears or, um, you know, Gargoyles or things with like these kind of really dense like like cartoon mythologies in a way. And I would get lost in these stories that were happening in sort of this world beyond what I was living. And I, that's where I kind of saw the power of that, like the power of narrative to just like lift you out of it, even if it was like a dopey cartoon, right? Um, and I got really interested in telling stories when I was like a young girl. And that was sort of what I used to get myself out of it. And you know, things got better for me as I moved into middle school and high school and sort of beyond it because I really just got myself into art and music and books and and film and, you know, used that as sort of my, my emotional conduit out. Um, things did improve at home as I got older and sort of better able to defend myself, stand up for myself. So, um that did make a difference. Um, and then, you know, just kind of finding an online writing community, finding people who were talking about some of these issues, like um, Dorothy Allison, Lydia Yuknovich. Um, I mean, Lydia Yuknovich was a big one for me. And discovering chronology of water was like, oh, my God. I mean, it was just um, it was stunning. Um, and I felt very much less alone in reading that book. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, just, and then even like reading stuff in the blogosphere where people were talking about having different types of bodies and embracing different types of bodies and moving through their own history of abuse. Like I felt as I got older, things just open up for me in terms of what I was exposed to and what I saw other people doing and making stories and narratives for themselves. And I was like, oh, this is healing. This is a healing thing that I can do too. And I could take that sort of early childhood 
thing where stories really matter to me and they made me feel like I could step outside of this hard world that I was living in into something better. And I think that's probably maybe how I became, like, how I used some of this background that I had to become like a writer. Yeah, it makes, I mean, that's a very astute self-assessment, I think, at least, mm-hmm. you know, in, in terms of my my lens on it, because I, having read you, feel like you, maybe to a degree that exceeds the norm, used different elements of pop culture mm-hmm. to sort of map your way, you know, mm-hmm. like the the heroes of... Uh, your favorite films and television shows and books, uh, your favorite musicians. I mean, these people were real lifelines for you. Yeah. And, you know, I guess they're lifelines for all of us, but maybe especially so for somebody who is dealing with all that you had to deal with as a kid. Like that makes sense to me, you know, and I Mm -hmm. think it's a survival strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's funny now because it's like, when you think about what people are and and to some degree like so i did not quite um hit at harry potter that i missed that i was not in that cohort and i'm gonna jk rowling of it aside because she's terrible and she said terrible things but there people have used harry potter um you know to get through this time where we are like politically right and socially right where like that there's always these references to characters and things from that franchise and i'll see people kind of make these comments or like read another book or like you know just kind of getting on people for that um and i've always kind of looked at that and went this makes sense to me that this is where people are going um this makes sense to me that like something like Wonder Woman made such a huge impact when it came out in 2017. Have you seen the the Wonder Woman, the the the, the one that came out a couple of years ago? I did. Yeah. That's the one with uh, the Israeli actress. I'm forgetting her name. Gal Gadot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like when you're talking about pop culture and and finding comfort in pop culture. So like you know that scene, right? And I'm going to try to not even get emotional when I'm describing it. But, like, you know that scene where she's, like, in the trenches and, like, this village is getting, like, horribly attacked by the Germans. And they've, like, enslaved the people in the village. And Chris Pine is like, well, we can't do anything. We just got to go through. And she's like, no, we have to help the people. And he's like, Diana, they call this no man's land. And she's like, I am no man or something like that. And there's that, like, scene where she comes out. Um, in the trenches and she's like wearing the Wonder Woman gear for the first time and she's like deflecting the bullets on her like shield and is just like going in and like deflecting all the fire and like I'm getting like even emotional talking about it and they have that like wonderful music in the background every woman like I knew wept during that scene I wept during that scene and it was like 2017 I think we were still all in shock about what the political reality was and what it meant for women. And to see a, a, a woman, a, a female body, get up there and do something that was uncomplicatedly brave, that was full of valor and power, and like, you know, that, that to see that woman be an avatar of justice and like stand up for like little people 
and have such um such gravitas and have like that hero moment that you have only really seen in men like it hit us in a really emotional way and so i i think that i mean for me pop culture has always been that lifeline has always been that thing that i've turned to and i don't think i'm alone in that as someone who's had a difficult childhood and done it but it's very interesting for me to see that sort of really resonate in this kind of cultural way yeah well okay see like as i'm listening to you i'm like evaluating my own like maybe more cynical take on all this <laughs> where i can be dismissive of pop culture yeah. i can be the guy who's like ugh, superhero movies you know like that can be me i've i've said that before on this show yeah but what i find compelling is Laura Bogart writing about these things. Mm. Like all that you bring to pop culture and your analysis of it, like, you know, it can redeem it. Mm -hmm. It can legitimize it. It can make it make sense to me uh, at a level of depth that I wasn't previously seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're giving it meaning. Like, I, do, you, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, I think yeah. it's great that you are there to sort of serve as a translator um, like I love a good entertainment just like anybody, I think, you know, or at least I have some space in my, in my brain for that, but I am not the enthusiast that maybe you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet I think that the role that someone like you, uh, in your writing can perform, uh, can kind of bridge that divide. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there, it goes beyond just a kind of surface level review or response to pop culture, like, OMG, that was great, four yeah. stars. Like, you're really getting in there and uh, elucidating, like, the emotional terrain that it's working on. And you might even be, I think, delivering deeper meaning to it than it even intended, you know? <laughs> we all we all bring our own stuff to these things. Like, yeah. maybe, maybe the director of Wonder Woman was really just trying to create, like, a cool dramatic action sequence and you're yeah. grafting onto it like Trump and the women's march and the hell of our yeah. political reality. You know what I'm saying? I totally know what you're saying. But and, and I think the thing that's very interesting and you know this as a writer yourself where it's like you cannot have any meaning attached to a certain thing that you do in, 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 in a thing that you've written. Right. And somebody will come to you and say, oh, did you do this, like, deliberately? And, like, if it's really good, like, I don't know about you, but I'll be like, yeah, I totally meant to do that. Like, you know, I had someone even come to me, and it was one of my beta readers for this book. Um, and she was like, oh, um, because I, I, my, my character at one point, she has this love interest, and it's a woman that her mother works with. And, um, my, I don't want to spoil my own book, so I'm just going to be very vague. But, like, this beta reader was like, oh, did you do this? And I had, like, not done this deliberately. Brad, I was like, oh, like, this just happened unconsciously, and it's great. Um, So, like, whether or not, like, the people who wrote Wonder Woman meant to do that, I don't know. And to, like, to some degree, like, I don't even care. Like, but I think it's interesting that, like, culturally – women grafted onto it and it means something like i think the things that we get really preoccupied with mean something and they sort of indicate where we could go on like a broader level i mean 
and what I mean, what I mean by that is so like you, if you look at like sort of the years preceding <laughs> current reality, he shall not, who shall not be named. Um, there was like this big trend in pop culture where everything was about anti-heroes, right? It was like Tony Soprano and Don Draper and Walter White. And it was these like really malevolent men who just like captured our imagination culturally, right? And to some degree, like you might not have thought, and, and admittedly, I was sort of like kind of already a little bit over that trend. But it was very interesting that we had this sort of moment in the zeitgeist where we were interested in the very bad man leading up into that election where, you know, he would do these things and you would want to sit there and go, oh, well, he's surely done, you know, because of this and that and the other. But there was always this like level of forgiveness and not just like forgiveness, but like intrigue about it. Um, And I feel like. I'm not saying like the anti-hero obsession led to him, but I am saying like there's something very interesting in our culture that this is what we were thinking about leading up into that and leading up into that election. Of 2016. Yeah, of 2016. Yeah. Okay. So like I'm going to I'm going to try to tie this back to your book because I think that one of the more resonant psychological analyses of the Trump phenomenon, if that's what you want to call it, (laughs) has to do with power and abuse Mm -hmm. and um, accountability or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And so when you were talking about the overarching theme of your novel and maybe the overarching theme of your your life or your young life, Mm. uh, you know, this idea of not wanting to repeat the sins of your abusers, to not become them, to transcend I think, and, and then also being honest about the temptation and the sort of natural psychological reflexive desire to become that so that you can have the power mm-hmm. that they exerted over you. That makes sense to me on a human level. Yeah. And I think when it comes to Trump, like one of the more astute analyses of his appeal to a certain kind of person is that he is able to act with seeming impunity uh, on so many levels, the sexually... Uh, racially, in terms of basic decency, mm. in terms of fundamental issues around democracy. You know, he's a violator of every norm, and he never seems to have to pay a price for any of it in a serious way. And this has been the case for him his whole life. And there is a certain kind of person, I think, that finds emotional... Uh, is it succor? Am I using that word properly? I think that's right, yes. Yeah, like yeah. they find a, a sense of... Um, I don't know, aspiration in it almost, or it's kind of like he's a superhero to them that they can, they can latch onto and cheer for, um, because the emotional, um, like high that they get from watching him do that Mm -hmm. makes them experience a kind of sugar high or has Mm -hmm. some sort of like weird medicinal quality for them. Mm -hmm. It's, it's rage has an addictive quality to it. And this is the thing that my heroine in the book grapples with. Rage has, it. it is like a sugar hit when you get it, when you do, when you get away with something that you feel like you should not be able to get away with. And so like, like my heroine in the book, like she has a number of moments where she's forced into confrontations that like do require her to be 
very tough and and aggressive and not just with her father but with like other people and so but she always like carries it like one step further and I was very deliberate in that where it's sort of a I wanted to do these sort of like hair splitting situations so like you know there's like one example right where she has this you know she's dating she's dating her her mother's coworker. And her mother's coworker has this like next door neighbor who's like terrible to her and is like always banging in the door, like just being a jackass. And my heroine gets it in her head, Angelina, that she's going to like defend this woman that she loves and like stand up for her against the neighbor. And she does. And on the one level, it's like you get this like, yeah like good for you like you're not gonna let him like walk all over you know this woman that you care about but she goes just a little too far and then suddenly it's no longer about this entirely it's not entirely about this like altruistic thing that she wants to do anymore there's like that little lizard part of her brain that's getting that hit right that that dopamine hit that you know that rush of the drug of anger um and like that's what I wanted to explore like the thing that is anger can be incredibly satisfying because it makes you feel active it makes you feel dynamic it makes you feel like you're accomplishing something you're doing something you are winning right that's the thing like if you can exert yourself over someone else you are winning and you have the power and you have the control and I like I am I understand easily how that sort of jingoistic type of thought can have an appeal. But I think the thing that we have to do is like people and the thing the challenge for like my heroine in this book is she has to get to a place where like, you know, the anger that she has and her willingness to like go to bat for people is like a good thing. Like the fact that she's willing to like go to her girlfriend's neighbor and be like you're being a jackass like don't do this is like a great thing but like for her to be able to stop it there and not feel like okay I haven't won if I haven't pushed it further than it needed to go um like that's the challenge for her because it's not so simple as like I'm gonna like go to an ashram and meditate and I'm never gonna feel anger again it's just like, how do you take anger and like make it something that's productive and that you can use? And like, I think the way like as women we're taught to think about our anger like right now is like that it has to have these like really positive ends to it, right? Like it has to be this like really galvanizing force. And that's great. It can be and it should be and I hope to God that it is as we, you know, move forward. Um, but I also feel like we have to, to get to that place. We also have to understand like the ugliness of anger and the addictive qualities of anger and the parts of it that you can't just use um, in this sort of raw, raw sensibility. And that's what I wanted to do. Like, that's what I kind of think this book was like. You know, it was an excavation of of anger and the power of anger and the the allure of anger. But then also it's about like, well, how do you move beyond? How do you hold on to anger when you need it? But then how do you like move on from it when that's what it is called to do? Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm with you on this. And I think 
you know, if we're going to continue to use our present political context as like the most obvious yeah. space where, you know, people on all sides are feeling anger and are fueled by anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, oh. like this quote has been floating around lately where she's like, you know, stand up for what you believe in, but do it in such a way that other people want to join you. Mm-hmm. That resonates with me yes. when it comes to issues around anger that might have a political bent. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other thing that pops into my head is this um, idea that when we are angry and we are expressing that anger, what we're really saying is I'm right. Yeah. Uh, you're wrong and I'm right. You know, like you, there's been a violation of some, of some sort and mm-hmm. we feel justified in our anger because we feel like we're right. Mm-hmm. And I do think kind of part and parcel to that, that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Yes. Uh, if, you know, you're an African-American woman and some guy comes up to you and calls you the N-word or, you know, I don't know, violates your space in some significant way, like being angry in response to that feels justified and righteous. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. think that anger is necessarily all bad. No. Um, and I think like my understanding of it lines up with something you were saying just a second ago about how to kind of transform it or acknowledge that it's there. You don't repress it. You don't mm-hmm. try to pretend it doesn't exist. You acknowledge that you feel angry, but you don't necessarily think, uh, speak or act from that place of white hot rage. Mm-hmm. That's the no, issue of yeah. control that like I struggle with in my own life, like just interpersonally. I think we all have moments where we lose our temper and we wish we would have just kept our mouth shut mm-hmm. um, or just did nothing or gone and taken a walk or counted to 10 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I also think of it as a writer uh, trying to respond um, to like the present political moment. I notice that my favorite writing about politics has a certain cool humor to it. There's an accuracy and a competence and even like a, a kind of like low-boiled rage. Mm-hmm. But whenever I write from this place of like self-righteous, white-hot anger, I always read it after the fact and just think, ugh. Yeah, that's honestly, yeah, I think that's, because I think the thing is, it's, it's like the, the, the kind of purity of the emotion there. I think the thing that makes writing good writing is, is there something, is there nuance to it? And the things in my life, like I didn't write about them until decades after it happened. Right. And then like, I wrote about, you know, I had like this sort of pseudo relationshipy long distance type thing. And it was really hurtful. Um, and it ended poorly. Um, and I didn't write about it for like two years because when I tried to initially, it was like that white hot rage. And it's like, well, there's nothing interesting here. This is just that's like when you were talking earlier about like the diary entry versus the like more measured and considered piece of writing. Um, And then like I took I didn't write about it except like personally for like, yeah, probably about like two years or so. And then like when I was able to sit down and like write about it, I was like, oh, like, okay, this hurt me. And I had this like raw, intense feeling around it. But, like, why did it hurt me? That's the more interesting thing. And I felt like time and distance were the only things that got me into the, like, 
this is why it's interest. Like this is why it hurt me. And the why is the thing that's so interesting and relatable. Um, so like, yeah, I agree with you. I think, and I think also with like online publishing and like the ability to like push things out, sometimes it's so easy to put things out there when you're in this sort of like emotional primacy of whether it's anger or, or sorrow or anything else, it's easy to just doom it's out there it's online it's done um and like on some level that can be a good thing but i think on on other levels it might um distance us from maybe the desire to sit with our feelings a little bit more before we press send and not just on um you know writing but like even like social media posts and things like that i mean i know like i have had to stop reacting to things like as I'm feeling them on social media, like in terms of like maybe Facebook or Twitter, because I had people go to me and be like, this is really intense and hard to sit with because I would like have really, you know, I'd feel a lot of anger about sort of things and I would just push it out there. And then I was like, okay, well, if I sit and like think about what it is I'm really feeling, maybe I can write something that's like a little bit more persuasive or um is more nuanced or gives other people more to think about than just like fuck this like even if that's ultimately what this sensation like boils down to um you know i think like you know the power of like ruth bader ginsburg's descents is is so magnificent because yeah like a lot of them do come from this place of great anger but it's eloquently expressed and it's expressed in a way that like we'll be able to pick up and and think about, you know, years from now. And maybe it'll change minds, maybe it won't. Um, but the delicacy of the thought there is so is is so much richer and more rewarding than something that is sort of just like bristling and immediate. Yeah, I mean I think you know, I'm thinking of like the peace movement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the show, but like uh, a logic that resonates with me is that if you want to win people to the cause of peace, you yourself have to be peaceful. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times we can see in the realm of political activism, people who are super worked up and passionate mm -hmm. and advocating for like justice, but they're just like yeah. full of rage and it's hard yeah. to win people to your cause. I think that's what RBG is saying, you know, yeah. like you got to do it in such a way that you can win people to your cause, that you can build community and a real social justice movement, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what she embodied in her descents. And that's why I think she's such a powerful figure for so many people. Yeah. Uh, because she carried herself with that grace. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's very interesting to me when, you know, when we think about our kind of current reality, um, a lot of, what is at play here a lot of the kind of they talk about the swing voter is is sort of the moderate person right the they talk a lot about the people in the suburbs and what are they going to do and not do and i would see a lot of people you know kind of shit posting online about the wine moms and the you know um the resistance moms and stuff like that like that was sort of the cool kid thing to do right make fun of the people that were very earnest um, in their, you know, in their resistance and, and, and very, you know, maybe it was their first time doing anything that was sort of activist based. And I would read that stuff and I would go, well, you know what, they're out there doing stuff and they're talking to people in their book clubs and they're talking to people in like 
you know, if they do sip and wine or they're talking to their neighbors and they're getting people to do it. Like, what are you doing by being cool and ironic and detached about the situation or by being so heated that, you know, maybe you'll say that if somebody who doesn't agree with you exactly on this one policy thing is that they're terrible and that they don't want anybody to have good things or access to healthcare or whatever. Like, I think it's, you know, I think it's we have to really move beyond sort of this absolutism and, you know, to sort of bring it back into into my into writing just in general. Like, I think that is when you think about sort of the therapeutic or cathartic value of writing when you're sitting down and whether it's like a personal essay or it's a piece of writing that is, um, you know, fiction, but sort of rooted in life or I don't know. I mean, even if you look at something that might be more speculative fiction, it still may be rooted in your own experiences and your own thoughts and your own feelings. Um, it can take you out of like the primacy of it, out of the sort of absolute of it. And you sit down and you think about sort of the granular mechanics of something. It can lead you to a more balanced and nuanced place. Yeah, I think that there is a notable similarity between the right wing or the far right wing, I guess you might call it like the real MAGA diehard, mm-hmm. like 30% of America Trumpian base that mm-hmm. is immovable. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a, a notable similarity between that faction and the hard left yeah. in the sense of this idea of like my way or the highway. And this, mm-hmm. I think this misapprehension of how politics in a democracy is supposed to work. Um, Like this wielding of power in such a way where you just obliterate your opponents and you get basically all things on your terms all the time. And that's the aspiration. And, Mm -hmm. you know, look, I think it's great to have ideals. I share a lot of the ideals of the far left. I, Mm -hmm. I consider myself a progressive. Yeah. But I'm going to like happily pull the lever for Joe Biden because Mm -hmm. that's what's in front of me. And Mm -hmm. you know, we gotta, we gotta be Trump. Like, I think you have to prioritize. Yes. Um, I lose patience with people who somehow can't prioritize and seem to train all of their anger, like all of their political anger, on people who agree with them 80% of the time, yes. rather than properly, I would argue, focusing it on people who are actively trying to dismantle democracy and establish an authoritarian white supremacist kleptocracy in our country. <laughs> like, yes. why is this a hard calculation to make? It drives me crazy. Thank you. Yes. And and, and, and it, it makes, and I think the thing that sort of is hard and I and I've had conversations with other friends. Um, and I think the thing that's been sort of hard about this is a woman who also has like progressive values. I think I, I've been lectured a lot um, over the past couple of years by like a lot of men who voted <laughs> for Jill Stein um, and Ugh. who yes and and but who like would have loved Elizabeth Warren right and and she was going to be the woman that they would have voted for. Um, but then didn't want to vote for her when she ran because, you know, she um, put a semicolon on something instead of a comma, you know, that sort of difference. And so um, I think this time has been sort of especially draining for a lot of of, of progressive women because we've seen sort of like, oh, we're not going to get real allyship um, 
you know, even in, in, you know, from people from guys who say that they support our, our causes or our ideas. So um, I think you're right when you say that can be very alienating. Um, like, you know, I, I, I wonder how many people might have been turned off from venturing further into certain spaces because they feel like I'm not perfectly aligned. I don't have like, you know, immaculate politics according to like certain demographics. So I'm better off just not participating. Yeah, I think it can be alienating for people, um, you know, to be like in that, you know, operating in that space between, you know, the far left and the more center, you know, the more center left or whatever, and feeling Mm -hmm. like you have agreement on many things, but not on everything. Yeah. And yet being made, made out to be a villain, you know, being sort of like a, like attacked, uh, you know, for having slightly different views or different views on certain policy issues. And I think what you're saying as well about misogyny, you know, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, like she was my candidate in the primaries. Me too. Um, I really love her. And I noticed you know, I think a lot of people noticed how once the person like they might say, I love Elizabeth Warren, I would have voted for her in 2016 had she ran. Mm-hmm. But then she runs and it's like, eh, she's too school marmy. There's they, mm-hmm. they find a reason. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's a similarity in that attitude uh, to the ways in which people on the right often try to cover up their racism and their misogyny. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, yeah. you know, it's always like, I'm not racist. I, you know, I just happen to love this white supremacist. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> well, and it's funny. And, and I've, um, I freelanced for, I, for Dame, I've written for Dame a lot. So I follow them. And there was I, one woman and I, I wish I had her name in front of me, but she wrote a piece and I hate to say this, but I, I think it's sort of true. And she said, I think the first woman president in this country is probably going to be a Republican because when they pick someone, they fall in line for better or for worse. And certainly for worse. I mean, I don't even, um, but I, and I'm sort of on that vein too, where I see how we tend to cannibalize our own on, on the, the more center and in, in the left side. Um, so I, increasingly sadly suspect that that may be the case um just seeing how elizabeth warren was treated in this because you know she was threatened and or kamala harris when she um ran in in sort of the early stages of of her running um amy amy klobuchar i find very interesting when we talk about rage and we talk about the idea of identifying with the abuser or identifying with the aggressor um just based on the stories that came out about the way she treated her staff. Um, so, um, and, and I, people talk about there being a sexist double standard with that. I, I am inclined to disagree with that a little bit because I don't think you should be um, yelling or abusive to anyone in the workplace. Um, and I thought maybe some of the attempts to shield her from that was a little bit... Um, uh, 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 misplaced. The instinct was a little bit misplaced. So I, I might not include her with that or, or, you know, or someone like Kirsten Gillibrand who had really good progressive, um, bona fides in some ways also got slammed. So I don't know. I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. 
it's listen it's just uh, you know i hear you on all of it i think there was the klobuchar thing with like someone's comb or their hair pick and she was oh, using yeah. it as a fork so, that's where i just yeah. was like okay okay this is yeah the, like, no, no like i'm not gonna vote for her just because this is disgusting <laughs> well and but that's the thing like and that's sort of like again where it's like we have to look at like i mean i guess like when you talk about also and you ask me sort of how it is that i have moved beyond some of these things like I think to some degree it's just getting older and having like more life experiences and seeing how this plays out in people who don't get healing for you know for like their anger issues and like I've been in you know like I'm I'm 38 now like I've been in um, numerous um, workplaces office environments and I've worked under people who have not gotten their anger under control and I've seen, like, how awful it is, like, you know, because when it's like when you're dealing with a parent, right, there's sort of that, um, you know, enmeshed quality, that, like, emotional enmeshed quality that feels, like, almost mythic, and it's really hard to, like, separate yourself from it. But, like, when you're in a workplace environment, you see it. Um, I had a lot of, like, oh, shit moments, <laughs> like, seeing this in people that I worked with or, like, managers that I had. And I'd be like, oh, this is the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> like, if I don't get this shit in check with my own temper and my own anger. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's um, – and and um, it's funny. Like, I was writing the book while I was working in a bunch of these office environments too. So maybe that influenced my thinking. You know, that just sort of came into my head. It feels like fair game to me to be a criterion uh, by which you would evaluate a prospective president. Yeah. Like, you know, just I'm thinking of Barack Obama by way of comparison, who was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, lionized for his cool, you know, and mm-hmm. criticized for it. You know, this kind of like Spock-like, you mm-hmm. know, methodical, like science-brained approach to everything. Yeah. But you never heard stories of Obama like berating anyone or throwing a potted plant against the wall. Like this is a man in control of his emotions. Yeah. Um, maybe even to a fault in some sense. But I'd rather have it that way than mm-hmm. have a president who's like flying into a blind rage in critical moments and could be making very important decisions under the influence of that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of uh, emotional craziness like that, that seems like fair game to me. Yeah. Well, and it's just, and I guess that's the other thing too. And it's like, it matters how you, like, this sounds very basic, but like, it matters how you treat people. And I don't know about you, but like, I feel like as I have gotten older, that matters more to me now than it ever did before. And maybe it's just because we live in times that feel so sort of dark and oppressive and scary. But like, you know, it's sort of interesting when you think about like the evolution of the way we've talked about. And I'm just using this like workplace things too, where before, you know, 2017, 2018, it was me too. And it would be these sort of big exposés about like sexual harassment or sexual violence in the workplace. And now, you know, we've moved into discussions of, like, racial harassment and bias in the workplace. And then one of the other things that I've been seeing come out a lot is these pieces about just people creating abusive, chaotic workplaces in general. Like, there was something that came out on Hollywood Reporter about this showrunner. Or, like, even, like, Ellen DeGeneres, right? Like, that was a bit, I mean, come on. 
but they were talking more about just like just the cruelty and the terribleness and 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 sort of the oppressiveness of being in these spaces and i think it's very interesting that we're having these conversations now about how power dynamics um manifest there and i kind of feel like in some level like being an adult in the workplace has really like influenced my thinking <laughs> about this in in a lot of other ways and i like i said i can't help but think it might have trickled into the book a little bit um when i was thinking about sort of power dynamics and the kind of person that i might want to be and that my heroine might want to be in the world yeah yeah and like not to linger on politics too long but i do no, want to no. say cuz you you were talking earlier about your fear that the first woman president could be a Republican. Mm -hmm. And I think like, let's say Biden wins, um, mm -hmm. which I think in a fair fight where the votes are all counted, he should. Yeah. Um, it's certainly seems to be in, you know, indicated in every single mm -hmm. poll. Mm -hmm. Um, but if he wins, like he's obviously older and it's mm -hmm. hard to imagine him doing a second term. Mm -hmm. uh, he might not even complete his first term, you know, just actuarially speaking, you got to be real about it. Yeah. And in that case, it would probably be Kamala, um, who would either assume the office and then run for reelection or who would be the favorite to be the candidate by virtue of being his vice president for mm -hmm. the next term. Mm -hmm. And I've, I think a lot of us have sat around thinking about like, well, what would that look like if she's, mm -hmm. the top, if she's at the top of the ticket and, uh, you know, a biracial, uh, woman, you know, as a candidate for president, like, are, are we ready, you know? And like, will the country rally? Like, I can only imagine mm. what she's going to face based on what I saw Hillary face in 2016. I think it'll be even worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, even what she faced when she, you know, launched her campaign in 2019. I mean, it, you know, th th you know, we can look at that too. But oh, yeah, I mean... I can't even go there. Like I'm literally just like on tenterhooks like every day. Like I can't even, I'm glad that like you can move into that space like emotionally and think about it. Like I can't even, like I feel like <laughs> I'm like just walking around with like my breath held the whole time. Um, and so like on some level, like I was grateful that I had to be like really creative about like book marketing promotion like earlier this year because like I just didn't, have to think about the primary or anything up until this point um i was just like okay i'm gonna be thinking about this this is where i'm gonna direct all this like anxious energy and now it's like i'm trying to find other ways to direct it um because like i'm i don't know man i'm scared <laughs> like i think we all are yeah and you know what it's probably i mean it's i think it's like natural to think about it a little bit but yeah i mean at this point we really got to take things one day at a time and just like yeah. tackle what's in front of us like let's get him let's get trump out of there mm -hmm. first and foremost yeah. and then we can worry about issues of possible succession or you know next elections but yeah. um going back to your book i want to ask you about point of view before mm. uh we part ways because i sure. think it's it's an important issue um, creatively, you know, obviously in, in writing in general, but in, in particular for the story that you're telling and the choice that you made to make a third person, multiple perspective POV mm. decision in mm -hmm. a story that deals with abuse is inviting, I think, a certain challenge uh, mm. as a writer to try to have to get inside the head of not just the victim, but also the perpetrator um, and the enabler. You know, mm -hmm. I think there are these kind of... Uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? You know, in situations like this, there is um, kind of traditional dynamics that often take place in situations of domestic abuse, you know, where there's the, the enabling mother and the abusive dad and then mm -hmm. the child victim. You know, I've mm -hmm. seen this, these tropes, you know, I've seen these play out before um, in nonfiction and fiction alike. Mm -hmm. um, you chose to enter into the minds of each. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why and how? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's a good, yeah. So here's the thing. Here's the deal. Um, <laughs> I, I think that very rarely are people born monsters. I think about, um, I think it is interesting and useful to understand how someone can inflict damage and violence on others. And not necessarily in the sort of true crimey podcast type of way that makes it lurid and um, sensationalized, but just at the kind of human level, like what happens there and what is that thought? that makes it possible for somebody to do that. And, you know, to bring it back to Brando, right? Streetcar Named Desire is a really powerful and interesting and complicated film. And that is a very complex performance and an iconic performance because it is taking someone who does horrible, horrible fucking things and it distills it down to He's a child. He has this like, you know, in his, and that's not absolving him also, which is another layer of the complexity. And Brando channeled his own father into Stanley Kowalski and he hated his father. He hated Stanley Kowalski. And so I think that someone who's going to do an interrogation of that trope has to be someone who hates it and understands it. And so that's where I was coming from in writing the father character and he was a challenge. That was very hard to do to put myself in that headspace. But to my mind, I I wanted, I thought, you have to, if I'm going to have this heroine go on this journey, right? And, and you know, she's slaying the minotaur of, of this family lineage, right? Um, how does that minotaur get born? And, and what, what does it look like if she doesn't do it? And so to my mind, then I had to put the father in there. I had to put his perspective in there as hard as it was. And I think the thing is, once I kind of got his voice, you know, when I've, and I've talked, you know, at length earlier about my own sort of destructive rage and my own sort of feelings about anger that was unhealthy and ugly. This is where I put it. And maybe, maybe I burned out more of it in the writing and description of him than I did even in her. I don't know, but I just had, a. I, I mean, I just was like, okay, Laura, like every unhealthy, awful thing you're, you've thought, here you go. Like, this is where you channel it. Um, and I was concerned, actually, in writing it, that I was going to turn the father into, like, an anti-hero type figure and, like, inadvertently glamorize him um, in sort of that Tony Soprano kind of Walter White type of way. 
Um, so I was like mindful of those things when I was writing him, but I knew that I wanted his perspective because I also wanted to get at the fact that he does. And I can't believe I'm going to say this in this way, but he does like love his child or he wants to love his child and he can't, he can't express it fully. He can't do it right. He can't take all this feeling that he has and translate it into anything but rage. And that makes him tragic. I think that is what makes people who can do those sorts of things tragic. And so I knew I had to at least try to write him as sort of like, you know, looking at my heroine going, you in danger, girl, like this is what you have to do to avoid. Um, and so that's why I felt compelled to tell his side of the story. And can I, can I stop you for a second? Because what you're yeah. talking about, I think, uh, a lot is the emotional difficulty, you know, of doing that work. It's oh, not, yeah. It's not pleasant. It's not easy to go inside mm-hmm. that mind and live there. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think uh, another question I would ask is, like, how to do it in a way that feels true to life. How, oh. to, how to inhabit that. Like, what kind of, like... I don't know, I guess maybe therapeutic work you've done or just like lived experience of it and mm-hmm. deep thinking that you had done over the years had given you insight into, into what makes such a person tick. Like, did you have to read up oh. on the abuser and the psychology of an abuser to be able to mm-hmm. render that character in a way that really um, felt lived in? Yes, I did. I did read a lot about like narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I also like... Like I rewatched a bunch of mafia movies too, because you have like in something like, and I'm, and I'm not being flip when I say that, but like, when you look at like a character, like, like the guys in Goodfellas, right? Like they think they're right. They think they're cool. They think that what they're doing is good for their families, that they're bringing home, protecting stuff for their family, making money for the family, that they're doing things that are, if not okay, but at least morally neutral because it serves them on their own ends. And I also knew that that's where the father's background was going to be like, that that was going to be where he came from. Um, I think you also see that in the Sopranos, like very much in like the Tony Soprano archetype where you have this man who is acting violently and reactively from a deeply wounded place. And so I studied, I basically what I did is like, I, I read about the psychology of it. I studied it the way it has been rendered in other instances of pop culture where you can see um, and and also, you know, Brando streetcar where you can see the repugnance of it, but you can also see the wheels turning in the mind of the person who's doing it. Um, and then, you know, when I thought about the way that I would write him, like just create the character on the page, right? Like on the prose level, Um, I am someone who like loves like long sentences with like a lot of like great imagery. Well, I hope it's great, but like a lot of like imagery. And I, with the father, I was like, I can't do that because he's not going to think that way. So it has to be like more clipped, more staccato, more blunt, like, um, you know, more cursing, more sort of crude terminology for things like that. And when I sort of made that decision to do that with the language, I was able to bring in the stuff that I found just in terms of research, in terms of like other viewing um, that I had done as well. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, No, no, it totally does. It totally does. And it feels true to form. You know, you're weaving in like the 
the more scholarly approach with like a pop culture, um, mm -hmm. you know, approach. And um, I, you know, I, I can see how that would work. I, I think that, uh, I mean, at least I would say I'm imagining that you did the same thing for the mother character. Like yes. you did some psychological reading and then maybe looked at similar characters that they, as they had been rendered, were there pop cultural reference points that you found for that yes. kind of character? Yes, I listened so I listened to a lot of Lana Del Rey when I was writing that character, Be and because that character is someone who like it's very interesting. Where like again, like I wanted to create these two um, flashpoints for my character, where the father is one extreme, and the mother is another. Like the mother is just what happens when you just sort of go, "This is life, and it's not going to get any better." It only really get worse, so just kind of float along. And and one thing that I also wanted to do with the mother is the mother is someone who was an actress when she was younger, and um, she wasn't doing as well as she thought she was going to do in life, and she was disappointed, and she glommed on to this very like personally powerful and charismatic man, and that you know like Lana Del Rey's songs are very much about like women who go toward that that archetype um and then of course like there's the Stella Kowalski's there's the gun balls of you know mafia tropes and things like that um you know I thought a lot about like to certain performers like Marilyn Monroe that evinced that sort of very deliberate um fragility and and this sort of wounded femininity when I was writing the mother um and so the mother is someone who's given up and so she represents like another kind of pitfall for my heroine and that adds another layer of tension right where she has she has no real where to go like she's got to form her own identity or she's either going to burn up like a supernova or just like drown in the quicksand um so it's you know sort of like this is what happens if you give up on your art and you give up on your life because my heroine is is a is an artist is a visual artist and it really was about creating this urgency of she has to create her own path or she's going to stagnate and fall apart and that's the end of it so having done all this work and all this deep thinking and made this book and made this meaning out of the difficulties that you've been through. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed tangible positive differences in the way that you, I guess it, you have the way that you relate to life. This gets back to the issue of catharsis, but yeah. I'm thinking most specifically about the ways in which you relate to your parents. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking like, have they read your book? Did they <laughs> read your work? Like what's the situation there? Mm, so, um, I mean, there are certain family reactions that I'm going to just hold close to the vest and, and that's sort of a very private thing. Um, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I, you know, I don't have much of a relationship with my father right now. Um, and that is what it is. <laughs> it is, you know, um, and, um, my mother, I'm, I'm working toward a place of, of reconciliation. So I think that would be sort of, yeah, that would be the way I would put that. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are tough processes and yeah. they can take a while. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like the work of a life. And, you know, I think the thing too is that 
like it's okay if you hit and like this is the thing that like I've had people tell me where it's like I mean I don't mean to always be making pop culture references but I'm gonna make another one um have you ever seen Bojack Horseman a little bit yeah I interviewed uh I interviewed Raphael Bob Wakesburg on this show not too long ago the guy who, who oh wow I'm gonna have to go back to that one because I anyway um that is like one of the best portrayals of like you have a difficult relationship with a parent and in this case it's his mother and you try to make it work and you just can't and I love that like that show was like you just can't sometimes and that's okay so like that's kind of where I am with my dad like I just can't and like I said it is what it is um I have more optimism about things with my mother so that's good um yeah but that's that's the arc of a life I think that's people have to do what feels safe and right for them in any given moment I hear you well I have so enjoyed talking with you this has been illuminating and fascinating and uh, I'm very happy for you that you are having this publication success Um, it's been fun to see um and i wish you are you working on another book i guess i I always ask people that i have some things that i am playing with i i also keep like new projects sort of close to the vest but i am playing with some new ideas and i am excited about them okay well we will leave it there laura (laughs) um great thanks for the time congrats again and all the best on whatever it is you're working on thank you Okay, there you go. That is Laura Bogart. Her debut novel is called Don't You Know I Love You, available now from Dezank Books. You can find her on the internet at laurabogart.net. She's on Twitter. Her handle on Twitter is at LDBogart, at LDBogart. The novel, again, is called Don't You Know I Love You, the debut from Laura Bogart. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 670 episodes and counting, all are available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen regularly and you like the program and you have the means, support the show. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you want to write to me my uh, email address is letters at other ppl.com if you want to send in a photo of where you listen and participate in the where i listen game you can send in a photo it could be a selfie it could just be a photo of wherever you are in space wherever you listen we like getting photos from listeners i like it it's fun You can email that to me, letters at otherppl.com. You can also DM the show on Instagram or Twitter. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. That, too, is free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. If you want to get some gear, Other People t-shirts, sweatshirt, tank top, you can do that. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar and acquire some apparel. Up next on the program, I've got Anne Helen Peterson. Great conversation with her, author of uh, Can't Even, 
How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's the official uh, book club pick for this month. All right. Stay sane. Three weeks to go. Don't forget to vote. Register to vote. Don't forget to do that. Vote early. Please.